It's time for another edition of Your Home Discovery, broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. Podcast available at yourhomediscovery.com. Your Home Discovery, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. Now, here's your host, Charlie Campbell. How are we going to want to live in our home? One of the popular topics that we always tend to touch on are outdoor kitchens. And it's interesting to dig in a little bit more because outdoor kitchens have quickly moved from really being reserved for the higher-end custom homes. They're really a mainstream product right now. And there's a lot that has been published on the growth of the outdoor kitchen And I guess a lot less has been written on the reasons for the growth. How do consumers view, use, and purchase outdoor versus indoor kitchens? So the National Association of Home Builders has a lot of good information for the remodeling contractors and builders that you would hire to perform some of the projects around your home. So for those people connected to the National Association of Home Builders, they have a lot more information to share with you about these types of things as opposed to someone who may just be very good at their craft but don't have that connection to National Association of Home Builders. They've done some research and looked at several insights that came out of the research. An outdoor kitchen, according to the research, is really viewed as an experience, while the indoor kitchen, it's viewed more utilitarian, more as just a room in the home. Um, The outdoor kitchen is more about fun, simply stated, where the indoor kitchen really focuses more on functionality. When planning and designing an outdoor kitchen, you really get to express your outdoor experience and design that space around not just, I don't think, not just your dreams, but how you plan to use it, how you plan to entertain. And there's several different things that have been rated by consumers that have to do with the outdoor space, not just the outdoor kitchen, but that outdoor space in general. And the most popular, I guess, if you say love it, they were given three options, love it, like it, or take it or leave it. And it's interesting to me how the most people clicked love it for a outdoor fountain. Now, one would have thought it's going to be a barbecue grill, a, a, a cooking appliance of some sort, a, 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 a deck, a pool, while a pool was third. An outdoor fireplace was second, but an outdoor fountain was at the top of the list. As we drop down to number four on the I love it category, the built-in grill. Number five, the pizza oven. And apparently we want to stand because sixth was a seating area. (laughs) I don't know. 
Seventh was a deck. Eighth was a bar. Ninth, an outdoor stove. Tenth, a roof or a canopy. Eleventh, refrigeration of some sort. That's for those that don't want to walk in and out from the outdoor to the indoor kitchen or those that you kind of need to pack snacks to get from one to the other. A fire pit, rounding out the I love it list, followed by a sink with running water, a standalone grill, a table and overhead lighting. Those were all love it. So, you know, the research really revealed that it's a lot more than just a place to cook. Although, when you say outdoor kitchen, you start thinking about kitchen cooking. But homeowners are are really wanting that emotional connection that's going to include features that make that outdoor space unique, fun, memorable. And the research clearly demonstrated that people want their outdoor space to have design continuity with the rest of the home. It needs to be a defined space with comfortable seating, a built-in grill, overhead lighting, a canopy, or a roof are definitely a plus. It's going to extend the number of days that you can use it here in Kansas. And again, it's just kind of neat to think about the fun involved in the outdoor kitchen. So if we back up and we look at this a little differently, so, you know, if you're in that work stage of life where you get up, you go to work, you come home, you do dinner, you do the miscellaneous things, you have time left to do, you hit the bed, you get up in the morning, you do it all over again. What do we look forward to when it comes to fun and relaxation? We look forward to the weekend. But I don't know about your weekends. Mine tend to go way too fast. We look forward a lot of times to an annual vacation, a getaway from that get up, go to work, come home, do the laundry, feed the kids, whatever it is, go to bed, do it all over again the next day. We look forward to that vacation. The intended consequence is that vacation is to get some of that R&R time, that ah. we put the phones away, we don't worry about the email, we have an auto response set. Everybody typically understands when they get a voicemail that says, hi, I'll be out of the office until Monday, the such and such. Well, why is it always Monday when we come back? That's just a bad day to come back, in my opinion. But we're sort of used to that. And even if we really need something, we kind of understand, because we're looking forward to a vacation ourselves, that everyone is going to work one of those in at some point. I must have missed that memo, because I haven't done that in a while. But the reality of it is, I've, I've analyzed this a little bit myself because I have missed that. So what do we do when we go on vacation? And I'm just going to paint one picture. There's a billion options. So we go somewhere, we check in, we take our luggage to the, the resort, we get everything sort of situated for the week, and then according to a survey that I read, The first thing people do after they, "Ah, I've put my bags in the room or I've put my stuff away, depending upon your anal tendency. Some people just get the bag to the room and that's good enough. They know it's there. First thing we do is we look at what outdoor space we have 
connected to our vacation location. So we go out, check out the balcony or the patio, and we sit down and we take it all in. So the following morning, we get up and you go to, here it comes, breakfast. And where is that often when we're out of town beach resort on vacation? That breakfast is at the restaurant there at the resort. And the seating area is where? Outside. So we spend 50 weeks a year eating breakfast indoors. But boy, we can't wait to get away on vacation. And nobody says, hey, I'm going to go to Cancun and eat outside. That's not really the intended consequence of that vacation. But what incurs is we experience those things. They all become part of that experience that we remember, even though it's not a conscious statement that, yeah, we ate our meals right out there on the on the porch or on the deck or the restaurant's eating area was outdoors. And sometimes some of that meal prep, food prep, and some of that cooking happens outdoors. And that all becomes, it's all rolled up into part of that experience of that getaway, that vacation. But the pictures we take are of us standing on the beach, edge of the water, doing the, the, the jet skis or whatever particular interest you may have. It might be an ATV ride somewhere. There's all of those things that go into the vacation. But every day, whether we ride the jet ski or not, whether we take the ATV or not, we eat. We typically eat outdoors. A lot of the meal is prepared outdoors. It's all part of that experience. Imagine... If you had this outdoor entertaining space, it does not only have to be used for bringing guests over. It can be your own little personal oasis, a getaway location. Again, we looked at the list of must-haves. A fountain, a fireplace, a built-in grill. Those things don't mean that you have to have guests over refrigeration was so far down the list that would almost be like a commercial setting where you're planning and 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 or it's a long ways from your current refrigeration the realities are this is within reach it is possible it is very popular and something we're gonna cover more stay tuned your home discovery continues straight ahead Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. We've been talking today about the outdoor kitchen. And the big drive to the outdoor kitchen often is the unintended portion of the vacation. It's kind of what we were talking about uh, here just a little bit ago in the program. Is One of the main things we do on vacation is we enjoy food. And a lot of times especially if we've gone to a beach resort that food is eaten outside a lot of times prepared outside and while we may barbecue drive up and down the streets and look how many people have a barbecue grill i mean it's a very common thing look at the fourth of july you talk about grilling burgers and dogs i mean barbecue grills are a mainstay but how about we enjoy that more like we enjoy it 
on vacation. So the National Association of Home Builders is, is great with research and they share a lot of really good information. So they pulled some folks that already own an outdoor kitchen and have for some time and said, okay, you have this outdoor kitchen entertainment space. Based on your experience with it thus far, what do you regret not having included when you put this in? Because quite honestly, it's tough. When you start thinking about how outside-the-box thinking, making your meal outside as opposed to just taking something you've prepared outside to cook it, let's make the meal outside. What is it that people regretted not putting into their outdoor kitchen? Number one, 79% of the people surveyed who have owned an outdoor kitchen for some time, what do you regret not including? This one amazes me, not because a pizza oven isn't really cool. I mean, it just doesn't it sound neat, just a pizza oven? I'm assuming you can cook a lot more than pizza in a pizza oven. So the number one Answer, 79% of folks that already have an outdoor kitchen regretted not having a pizza oven. Number two, a stove. Number three, a built-in grill as opposed to a standalone. A sink with running water. 45% of those that already own an outdoor kitchen wish that they had included that. Buyers want space that's expandable in the future. But quite honestly, just the appeal of the outdoor kitchen, more than 90% of owners stated it was extremely appealing to provide a plan that includes that future expandability as things progress, as we add conceptual ideas to that outdoor entertaining space. Earlier when we talked about the survey of the things that would really be cool to have, number two was the fireplace. And I find it interesting how that didn't make the list till almost the bottom, and it was called a fire pit because that's how we started in outdoor kitchens. And then the outdoor fireplace took hold, and quite honestly, I'm seeing televisions in them now. There's all kinds of cool things that you can do with that outdoor space. Outdoor expertise is considered critical to consumers when you choose a contractor. So don't just hire a guy who says, well, yeah, if you want one of those, I could throw that in. Get someone excited about it that understands the products available. Homeowners overwhelmingly felt that expertise in the outdoor living design was critical, and respondents indicated that indoor kitchen expertise was really less of a concern. We see that indoor kitchen as utilitarian, as we talked about earlier. So how much can that add to the cost? A lot of that is just going to depend on how much you throw into the space, remembering to allow for some future growth. But obviously, consolidating that outdoor space into the initial construction of a new home does make it financeable much more easily 
than a second mortgage, although, you know, those are possible. We have questions coming in on the email box about countertops and colors. And uh, uh, one of them is from a remodeling contractor. He says, I've been in business for six years and I'm starting to get an awful lot of questions about the types of countertops and colors that millennials want in their kitchens. Again, I refer a lot to the National Association of Home Builders. They conducted a recent survey highlighting the preferred kitchens and colors and features among recent and prospective millennial homebuyers. We have to start to twist our thinking about who's going to be buying the homes. So a considerable share of the millennials, 31%, and this makes my, it, it, it's not where my brain is, 31% prefer white kitchen cabinets. Personally, I, I like the, the, the wood-looking kitchen, whether it's cherry, whether it's hickory, whether it's oak. I just like the white or the the wood look, but the white look, 31% of millennials are preferring that. Millennials are essentially split, 18% wanting dark brown cabinets, 16% medium brown and 14% black. 13% prefer gray cabinets. Just numbers I hadn't thought of. Um Kitchen appliance color preferences by generations. 64% of millennials prefer a stainless steel color for the kitchen appliances, while only 22% prefer black and 12% prefer white. Stainless steel is the most popular appliance color across all generations, which 64% express a preference for it. When it comes to black, though, millennials are more likely to choose it than Gen Xers. Millennials would pick a black appliance 22% over 16% for Gen Xers, 13% for boomers, and only 12% for seniors. These reports are interesting to me because Across the board, these percentages do tell a story. If you look at them from a 30,000 feet elevation, you don't try to analyze one person's answer over another, and you look at the general answers. There was also included data on preferred countertop materials. 62% of millennials prefer granite or natural stone countertops. Significantly more than the shares that want quartz-engineered stone at 17%, laminate at 12 and solid surface at 7 Kind of interesting when you start looking at that. There's a lot of interesting data shared by the National Association of Home Builders. Ergo, hire a contractor that's part of that. Go to the National Association of Home Builders website and search for your local Home Builders Association or Building Association. A lot of great information there, and you can find a contractor in your area that has 
access to this information all the time and probably reviews it quite often. Ergo, you're going to have a more knowledgeable individual and one better able to suit your needs. We're going to dive into the email box, charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. The question, since we're talking about kitchen cabinets and colors, the question is about drinking water in the kitchen. And it says, I have a kitchen sink with a faucet, pull-out sprayer, a soap dispenser, and then I have a separate faucet over on the edge of the sink that is supposed to supply drinking water according to my real estate documents when I bought the home. However, we really haven't ever done much with it and called a plumber. He said that the filters need to be changed every year. Can you kind of go over this filter replacement schedule and is that normal to replace a filter every 12 months? Depending upon where you are in the country, you will have different contaminants in your water. And obviously, if we are encapsulating contaminants inside a filter, there's a lifespan. We don't want them to stay for an extended period of time. Typically, across the country, if you're feeding soft water into a drinking water system, you can get by with replacing the membrane on a reverse osmosis unit every two years. The pre and post filter, it, they're correct, it is an every year thing. Charlie at yourhomediscovery.com. If you have a question, Shoot it to us via email. More helpful ways to build and improve your home sweet home are straight ahead. Stay tuned. Your home discovery now continues. Here's your host, Charlie Campbell. A recurring theme in the home building industry is housing affordability. The impact of the death of attainable homes, if you want to look at it that way, To build a home with value in mind, you have to think about value from the start, from the creation of the floor plan. Key considerations in creating value-promoting floor plan include a few simple things. Reducing exterior walls, minimizing circulation. Buyers don't want to pay for hallways anymore. They're kind of a thing of the past. Creating long sight lines tends to make a smaller foot print feel bigger and we want really to maximize natural light and open space again it makes smaller footprints feel large you don't need to have as much space if you manage it correctly the considerations are going to add value by making a small plan live large if that makes sense Some key points if you're looking at building a home is to keep it simple, keep it bright. If a prospective buyer were to walk into your home, you want them to be overwhelmed with that, I want to live here feeling. Okay, So as a builder, you can entice that desire without breaking the bank, and really you can do that through maximizing natural light and open space to create a feeling of luxury. 
some ways to promote light and luxury is lining up windows with doorways to allow light to flow through the space. We talked earlier about the longer sight lines and keeping draperies somewhat limited to add the light and expand the feeling or the perception of space. We want to focus on some flexibility, providing a variety of options that can make simple floor plans seem like so much more. You can create a room designed in such a way to fit a number of potential buyer's goals. And a lot of those today are things like a home office, a spare bedroom, a crafting space. Some might struggle envisioning how they might use a space. So it's really crucial to demonstrate flexibility in some of these spaces. Creative design can go an awful long way. This is also something... As you're designing a home, you're not going to do overnight. It's not an incredibly fast process. You have to think through how you want to live in this space. Remember, creative design is going to go a long ways. So on the same track as using simple materials to create that feeling of luxury, employing some creative design can go a long way toward maximizing your dollar promoting that luxurious feeling. So we want to think about things like arranging mirrors to make a room appear bigger. Adding a frame around a simple mirror can make it appear more expensive. Including an expensive pillow or two on a more affordable sofa. There are ways to dress things up that don't have to break the bank. Think outside the box. So when it comes to thinking outside the box, we can't just think outside the box inside the house. We have to think about the exterior details because they matter probably as much, especially when you start thinking about curb appeal. I got a message through the Facebook Message Center asking about different types of projects how much you can expect to get back on that investment. Right now, the ROI chart is showing just basically 10 best home renovations and the average resale value. So if we were to talk about the top three, getting money back from the project, attic insulation is typically recouping 107.7% of the cost. And I think, I think a lot of that could have to do with how much you're going to save in energy as well. Number two on the I'm going to get the most back is the entry door. And ironically, as you're starting to think about that new home, stone veneer is really paying off. So, those are some, some top things, but again, there is a full-on um, section talking about the cost versus value survey. That is done by Remodeling Magazine, and we're going to go over that in the coming weeks. Going to the email box, my steam shower generator is getting power, but I'm getting no steam. What can I do to check that out? Well... The first thing to check is, 
quite honestly, to see if the water is turned on to it. You have to have supply water to the steam generator, obviously, in order to create that. And sometimes those get turned off either during maintenance, maybe in another area of the home. It's simple to check. That's the first thing. Um, if the if the valve was shut off, obviously you can't get water to pass into the holding tank, and the generator's not going to produce any steam. If water is in that holding tank, the heating coil or element inside that heating unit is probably your issue. So unless you really know what you're doing, replacing or repairing a heating coil, that's really a job left best to the professional. It's easier to replace the coil than it is to try and repair it. Either way, you know, you may really want to consider getting a professional. Another problem that I get questions about occasionally when it comes to steam showers is low steam pressure. Obviously, our water's turned on. The heating element is working. We're, we're getting some steam. We're just not getting good pressure. I would say that's a more common complaint than any, and that is typically caused by leaks or faulty seals on the water and steam outlet valves or piping. You want to check the pipe and the valve fittings for signs of condensation or leaks, and if leaks are evident, you may be able to simply remove the fitting and reseal it and reconnect things to get that sealed back up. But if it gets much more involved in that, you really may want to consider a professional. We're in the midst of answering a question about a steam generator not working. We pretty much covered that, but in the email that I went back, we've determined this particular steam generator isn't getting power. And the question was just came back in this morning. It said, okay, I've determined we have no power and it's not the circuit breaker. I'm trying to disconnect the unit. And when I open this up, can you tell me what the different wires are? I've always wondered why we have the different colored wires that we do. And interestingly, this is a topic we talked about, but it's been several years ago. And I cannot stress enough that just because a wire is a certain color, and I'm going to tell you what the colors are supposed to stand for, but that doesn't mean that's how they're being used. But depending upon the where that wire actually gets installed, it could be in an element that it isn't designed to be. Does that mean that the wire is not going to be able to handle the load? No. It does mean that you need to know how to troubleshoot these things, and if you don't, I definitely recommend getting a professional. The professional is going to be able to legally open the breaker panel. I mean, I had an email last week said, you know, I was tracing some wires back when I was trying to find a circuit, and I removed the cover. It only had one of the screws in it, and I'm looking in here at a spaghetti mess of wiring. So, the reason I bring this up, I, I think it's crucial that we talk about, uh, again, depending upon where you are in the country, jurisdictions have different rules and regulations. You want to check with your local code administration to confirm. However, in most 
jurisdictions across the country in order to remove the cover from a breaker panel you're technically supposed to have an electrical license in other words the voltage under that cover it literally can kill a person so we don't want to take that lightly there's there's a lot of items that can easily be done by a novice do-it-yourselfer painting as long as you're not getting on a ladder can be fairly simple when it comes to things like our gas systems or your propane system or your electrical system we're dealing with products that literally have to be managed correctly and doing it incorrectly can result in serious serious injury or even death so getting that professional that has been trained that has a license that knows when to pull the permit is really your best scenario charlie at yourhomediscovery.com stay tuned your home discovery continues straight ahead your home discovery now continues here's your host charlie campbell to talk about the basics there's really only three different types of wire that we need to identify it's either hot it's neutral or it's ground in most home wiring a lot of different colors could be used for the hot wire when it comes to switching neutral and ground wires are typically either white or green but any power wire is typically black the hot wire unless it's a traveler and we're going to talk about that in just a little bit but the main thing i have to tell you if you're going to do any of this checking yourself make sure that you turn the power off to eliminate the danger of electrocution electrocution i can't even talk i don't know why am i on the radio if i can't talk i don't know i think it's lazy tongue day electrocution anyhow make sure you turn the breaker off the fixture off you really want to cut that power and make sure that we have no shocks so why are wires different colors the reason for the color to start with is so as you're connecting sometimes hundreds of feet away you want to make sure that you're connecting the same wire for its intended purpose on both ends. So that is the basic reason and as long as things are hooked up correctly it makes identification pretty simple. The black wire carries the current from the power source to the outlet or the receptacle. Whenever you see a black wire it should be hot. There's other wires we talked about a little bit ago called travelers that carry current in more complicated circuits. In a complicated three-way switch, you walk into a room, you turn the light on. As you walk through that room and exit on the other side, you flip another switch and that same light shuts off. We're going to have traveler wires in that circuit, but we're talking about basics today. To complete any circuit, you have to return that power to its source. AC power, AC stands for alternating current. 
the white wire is the neutral wire, and it typically does the returning of the power. In some instances, you might find that a white wire is marked with a piece of black electrical tape. And that typically means that it is acting as a hot wire and it's no longer neutral. Green wires or bare wires or bare copper, you would think is going to be a ground wire. Ground wires are essential and used as a protective measure. They return fault current to the Earth's ground, protecting you and I from electrocution. Now, for some of the other complicated circuits, red wires, they're commonly found in like a multi-conductor cable, typically called travelers and used for two-way or three-way switching. And since red wires are still conducting current, we typically use those and consider them to be hot. The yellow and blue wires are sometimes used in more complicated circuits like two-way and three-way switching. They're used as hot wire to conduct between switches and poles. Yellow and blues are typically known as the traveling power. Those are really the most common colors used. Some other combinations could include a striped wire, but there's really not an easy-to-use standardization when we get into wire striping. It's moreover a way to identify the other end of the wire once you've connected one section. Again, I don't recommend just getting in there and taking a screwdriver and disconnecting these wiring, even if you think you have the power off, if you're not sure what you're doing. The smartest solution here is to get a professional electrician involved. One other quick question that just came in on the Facebook Message Center is asking about the GFI button in my garage. It says, my garage has an outlet with a button, and oddly enough, I have found I have to reset that button in order to get the outlet outdoors to work. Does that mean I have a problem if one outlet is in control of another? The simple answer to that is no. What that means is that outdoor outlet is protected by the GFI circuit that is inside the garage. There are several different ways to protect a GFI circuit. You can do that with the GFI outlet which you see the test and reset button on the outlet. Another way to do it is to take a standard looking outlet and protect it, like in this case, through the GFI circuit protection in the garage. Yet another way to do it is to put a GFI breaker. And we talked about this, I don't know, earlier in today's program. If you don't have an electrical license, you really shouldn't be removing the cover of the panel. We probably don't want to go around pushing test and reset buttons either if we're not sure what we're powering and what we're not powering. I mentioned a few weeks ago we had, I think it's been about, I don't even know how long ago it was. We did a show on basic electrical discussions, different colored wires, and we got into a little more of that today. The, the reality is it's a very wise investment to hire a professional licensed electrician 
And if nothing else, have them out for, ask for a one-hour consult. Maybe they'll come out, the cost of one hour of electrician's labor, to go around and help you figure out your circuitry. It's a good idea. I've got, I think, three emails just in the last week of people that have purchased a home, moved in, now they're plugging and unplugging things. The electrical load in a home is different with the new owner. We have higher drawing appliances sometimes in different rooms. And as we talked about several shows ago, when it comes to wiring, you might have a standard duplex outlet in three different bedrooms that's on the same circuit. And then the outlet next to it could potentially be on a different circuit. What electricians are trying to do in the initial construction plan is we're trying to spread that load on an assumed given of where you're going to plug things in that have a heavier draw so that we do not overload circuits, but that we do provide an ample number of plugins. So if we think about homes back when the lighting in the home was gas, we had gas piping running through ceilings and to fixtures so that we could power a gas light fixture. Now we have homes that are, are literally being built with 400 amp breaker panels. And our first breaker panels were like 30 or 60 amps. If you remember back in the day, the screw in fuse. And when, you know, I, I've heard stories Never done this myself, but I've heard stories that when that fuse blew, if you unscrewed it and put a penny in there and screwed it back in, that it would work. Well, it, 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 that's absolutely false. It, it doesn't work. What it does is it acts as if the fuse isn't there. And these fuses, I hate to spend even more time reiterating something that we've covered just recently on the program, but the reality is Electrical circuits are designed with a breaker that is to trip in the event the load on that circuit exceeds its rated amount. So a lot of guys will say, well, but it can handle more than that. Well, that's true. It can handle more than that. And while it's doing that, it is getting the wires hot because extra voltage is coming through the wiring in order to handle the demand. So whatever you do, do not take that 15 amp breaker out that's tripping constantly and put in a 20. Unless, of course, you know for certain that the wiring that you're feeding with that 20 amp breaker is designed for a 20 amp breaker. Most of the time, if you find a 15-amp breaker, the wiring coming to that breaker is only rated for 15 amps. And we're really never supposed to load a circuit more than 75 or 80% of its capacity. Again, it depends on the area you live. Charlie at YourHomeDiscovery.com. I would love to hear from you and answer your questions. Thanks for enjoying another edition of Your Home Discovery with Charlie Campbell, a presentation of CQH Ranch, LLC, keeping everything around your home sweet home looking great. 
broadcast nationally on AM and FM radio stations, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and more, plus easily found on most social media channels. Tune in again soon for more tips and ideas to keep your home sweet home looking great. Podcast available 24-7, yourhomediscovery.com.